With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with a pretty lengthy news update on Napoli, as quite a bit happened this week. Then we'll cover Serie A and Europe. In part 2, we'll recap the finals of the Europa League and the Champions League. And in part 3, we'll do another feature. Today, we're going to talk about the Bosman ruling. And don't worry if you're not sure what that means. I'll explain at the top of part 3. So let's get right into the Napoli news. The big story on the weekend was that Lille have agreed to sell defender Gabriel to Arsenal. Lille had been waiting for Napoli to sell Koulibaly so they can sell Gabriel to Napoli. But the Azzurri simply ran out of time. Fabrizio Romano gave his here we go tweet which is as close to a guarantee as you're going to get. According to Fabrizio, Gabriel was scheduled to fly to London on Monday to sign his contract which will be until 2025 and the transfer fee is expected to be 30 million euros though I've seen some reports that suggest it's 28 million euros plus 2 million in bonuses. Lille's president Gerard Lopez has developed a strong relationship with De Laurentiis so I'd be surprised if the two didn't speak before this happened. And what that suggests to me is it could be a while before we have a final decision on Koulibaly, one way or another. In other news, Napoli commenced its summer retreat on Monday. We got to see a couple of new faces wearing Napoli's new training kits, which actually looked quite nice, despite the Aqualette logo being written in red. Among those names were Amir Rachmani and Victor Osimhen, who secured his first goal in training on Monday. Andrea Petania was not among the 34 players to attend the retreat, while he recovers from COVID-19. That likely means we won't see him get much playing time in the opening weeks of the new campaign while he gets back to match fitness, though he probably wasn't going to start much with Osman now in the squad anyway. 
Seven lesser-known players are with the squad, including goalkeeper Nikita Contini. He came through Napoli's youth system and spent the last five seasons on loan to various different clubs. In 2015, he played for Spal. In 2016, he played the first half of the season for Carrereze and then the second half with Taranto. In 2017, he played for Pontedera. In 2018, he played for Siena, and in 2019, he played for Virtus Santella. Gattuso also called Gennaro Tutino, who has been rumored to be included as part of a cash-plus player deal with Sassuolo for Jeremy Boga. Gianluca Gaetano is also there, but only for a short period before returning to Cremonese, where he is currently on loan. Winger Amato Cicciretti returns from a loan at Empoli, and actually scored a beauty on day one. Midfielder Alfredo Bifulco returns from a loan spell with Juve Stabia. And striker Zinedine Mashash returns from a loan at Cosenza. Finally, Antonio Daniele joins from the U19 Primavera squad. And because Mario Rui had to stop training on day one after picking up an injury, he has been replaced by 20-year-old Primavera player Alberto Seneze. On Tuesday, Aurelio and Edo De Laurentiis, as well as Juntoli and Gattuso, spoke to the media. They all spoke very highly of the facilities, which makes me wonder if this might become a permanent location for the summer retreat. It certainly seems like the mayor of Castel di Sangro, Angelo Caruso, and the president of the Abruzzo region, Marco Marsilio, who also spoke to the media, are doing everything they can to convince Napoli to stay. I think that makes a lot of sense. Castel di Sangro is a lot closer to home than Castel Volturno is, and the latter is shared with the Primavera squad. So what would be great to see is Castel di Sangro become the new home for the senior team, and then Castel Volturno, with some additional investment, become the home of the Primavera and the academy. In his interview, Gattuso said he has a strong team with young players who are in the top 15 in Europe. He added that for now, they will talk about the players who are there, and if they leave, they'll talk about that later. He noted that a different sport was being played the last few months, which is different than football. We've heard Gattuso use that line before. They'll have to do their best to avoid injuries, as these factors will make the difference. In terms of the formation, there has been some speculation that Gattuso will switch to a 4-2-3-1, and he did say in the interview that with Osman at the club, they can try something new. With Osman, they will play more vertically and they will dribble less. Finally, he said the goal is to get back into the Champions League, both for the value of the players and the value of the club. However, he recognized the difficulty of reaching the Champions League as other clubs have improved as well. Juntoli was naturally asked questions mostly about the transfer market. He said there are many talks going on, but many clubs are licking their wounds after the losses from last year. The market is in a bit of a deadlock for everyone, but he hoped that in the first week of September things can get more serious. When he was asked about replacing Callejon, Juntoli said that Gattuso has shown he knows how to use players like Lozano and Politano. Finally, he said that many things have changed in recent years starting with the players, then they brought in a coach with more character. Now the club has to focus on motivating the players to start a new cycle. Finally, De Laurentiis also spoke to the media. He said that last summer, and including the winter, Napoli have spent over 300 million euros on players. Reno will evaluate these players to determine who will stay and who will have to leave. One thing that's for certain is that Napoli will not do a sales campaign because there are vultures waiting to pounce. However, he also said that there are 35 players in retreat and we only need 24, which means there are 11 redundancies. When asked if Koulibaly is staying, De Laurenti said to ask Manchester United, City, and PSG who can afford to pay the player. Finally, De Laurentiis announced that Piotr Zielinski has extended his contract to 2024 with an option to extend to 2025, and the speculation is that the pool salary will double from 2 million euros per season to 4 million, including bonuses. After Wednesday's training session, Napoli will present new signings Victor Osiman and Amir Rachmani at the afternoon press conference, and the speculation is that 
they will be wearing the new jerseys. With the shortened preseason, Napoli will commence its friendlies very quickly. We will play Aquila on the 28th of August, and then we have Teramo on September 4th. 1,000 fans will be allowed to attend both the training sessions at Castel di Sangro and the friendly matches under the strict COVID protocol. After the summer retreat, players will depart for an international break before returning for the start of the new campaign. Fabian has been called up by Spain's national team for friendlies against Germany and Ukraine on September 3rd and 6th. Fabian was the only Serie A player called up to Spain's team. Notable snubs include Lazio's Luis Alberto and Roma's Paul Lopez. Dries Mertens is one of three Belgians called up for matches against Denmark and Iceland. The other two are Romelu Lukaku and Timothy Castagna. Finally, in transfer news, Dominique Soboslai, who had been courted by Milan and Napoli, announced on the RB Salzburg official website that he will be staying for another season because he wants to play in the Champions League. Moving on to Serie A, Professor Gianni Nanni, who is the head of Bologna's health staff and a representative of Serie A doctors in the medical commission of the FIGC, told Radio Kiss Kiss that if the recent trend of players testing positive for COVID-19 continues, the postponement of the start of the 2020-2021 campaign would be a real possibility. Dr. Walter Della Frera, who represents the Italian Football Association in the Medical Commission of the FIGC, was a bit more positive. He said they're monitoring the epidemiological curve closely, and currently there is no reason to postpone the start of the championship. Since then, Bologna manager Sinisa Mihailovic and Fiorentina midfielder Eric Pulgar have both tested positive. The Mihailovic case is particularly concerning given his recent battles with leukemia. In other news, the latest update on the broadcasting rights as reported by Il Sole 24 Ore and ANSA is that CVC, Advent, and FSI are ready to join forces. The three funds plan to create a consortium to become a minority shareholder of the media company that Lega Serie A will set up to manage TV and commercial rights. They will also propose to use part of the invested capital to create a fund to encourage clubs and administrations to build new or renovate old stadiums. The consortium thinks there's an untapped market to adapt commercial development to the domestic and foreign potential of the league, and they also hope to secure the TV rights for the next three-year contract. The deadline to submit their final offers has been postponed until Friday, so the assembly meeting has now been moved from September 2nd to the 8th. Moving on to Europe, with the Europa League and the Champions League now complete, the seeds were confirmed for the 2020-2021 Champions League group stage draw. I'll see if I can post the list of teams in each pot after the episode posts, and that draw will happen on Thursday. After the Champions League final, UEFA released its updated club and association coefficient rankings for the period from 2015 to 2020. Bayern topped the rankings, followed by three Spanish clubs in Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Atlético Madrid in that order. Juventus are the highest-ranked Italian club in fifth. Manchester City, PSG, Sevilla, Manchester United, and Liverpool round out the top ten. As for the Italian clubs, Roma are 17th, Napoli 18th, Inter 33rd, Lazio 38th, Atalanta 48th, Milan 81st, Fiorentina 82nd, Torino 103rd, Sassuolo 104th, and Sampdoria 105th. In other news, Ligue 1 commenced its season on Friday after being off for five and a half months. Fans were permitted to attend but have yet to see any official attendance numbers. Lille hosted Stade Rennes on Saturday. My fellow Canadian Jonathan David played his first match for Lille with Victor Osimhen joining Napoli. Centre-back Gabriel did not suit up for this match as he's on his way out. Finally, there was plenty of European competition action on the weekend. We're going to cover the Europa League and Champions League in Part 2. We also had the quarterfinals of the Women's Champions League on the weekend. 
On Friday, Barcelona beat Atletico Madrid 1-0, and Wolfsburg crushed Glasgow City 9-1. On Saturday, Lyon defeated Bayern Munich 2-1, and PSG beat Arsenal 2-1 as well. So that set the semifinals. Barcelona played Wolfsburg on Tuesday. Wolfsburg won that match 1-0 to clinch their spot in the final. The other semifinal is a French derby that will be played between Lyon and PSG on Wednesday. I'll be cheering for PSG as 19-year-old Canadian Jordan Huitema plays for them. She also happens to be Alfonso Davies' girlfriend, so I'm hoping the couple both finish the year as champions. That will do for the news. In part 2, we'll recap the European Cup Finals. In Europe, we had the finals of both the Europa League and the Champions League this week. The Europa League final was played on Friday between Inter and Sevilla. Sevilla entered into this match having won the competition more times than any other club. They're also in great form, having gone 20 consecutive matches in all competitions without a loss. Sevilla had to beat Roma, Wolverhampton, and Manchester United to reach the final. Inter have won the tournament three times, though they've played a lot more in the Champions League. In fact, Inter have won the Champions League three times as well. They've also been in great form of late. So Inter did have the easier path to the finals, beating Hitafe, Leverkusen, and Shakhtar Donetsk. This was also a match between managers in their debut season with their respective clubs. Lopetegui joined Sevilla after a short stint with Real Madrid. Conte joined Inter after a three-year run with Chelsea. Sevilla won what was a really entertaining match 3-2. Romelu Lukaku opened the scoring the fifth minute from a penalty spot. Luke de Jong scored a brace to give Sevilla the lead, but Inter immediately responded to equalize on a Diego Godin header, and in the 74th minute, Sevilla went back ahead on a Lukaku-owned goal. So I want to start by talking about a few players. First, you have Diego Carlos, whose fingerprints were all over this match, both for the good as well as for the bad. Carlos really struggled to handle the strength of Lukaku. It was Carlos who fouled Lukaku on the penalty call. That was the third successive match that Carlos has conceded a penalty. He fouled Adama Traore in the quarterfinals against Wolverhampton, but was fortunate that Raul Jimenez missed the shot. He also fouled Marcus Rashford in the semifinals against Manchester United, which Bruno Fernandes converted. There was some controversy around this particular foul on Lukaku. Carlos was shown only a yellow card for the foul, but I think you can make a pretty strong case that he should have been given a straight red. Before I get to my thoughts, if you want to hear a comprehensive breakdown of the officiating rules around this call, Check out the latest episode of the Sempre Inter podcast hosted by Nima Tavali-Ruzzeri. 
Mike Gallo, who's actually a producer for the local ESPN channel in Toronto called TSN, was on the panel for this one. Gallo was a FIFA-trained referee, and he also got some insight from FIFA trainers for this episode. Now, I know many of our listeners will not listen to an Inter podcast, not just the Napoli fans, but the Juventini and the Milanisti as well, so I'll give you a quick summary of what Gallo said. He explained that there was a rule change a few years ago. The rule used to be that if a foul was committed when there was an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, then it was a straight red. Now, it's not just the goal-scoring opportunity. Another criterion has to be met. In this case, the question is whether the defender was making a play on the ball. Other reasons for giving a straight red include holding, pulling a jersey deliberately, pushing, foul play, violent conduct, or a deliberate handball. According to Gallo and the FIFA trainers that he spoke to, there was not a clear goal-scoring opportunity here, and Diego Carlos was making a play on the ball. When I watch this play, I see it completely differently. First, I don't know at what point you say, right, this is now a clear goal-scoring opportunity. The way I see it, and I'm not a referee, if Lukaku is not fouled there, he's clear to the goal, so there's a clear goal-scoring opportunity. Second, I don't know how you can say that there was any attempt on the ball in this play. Carlos was clearly beat and was only trying to stop the man. Not only was there no attempt at the ball, there was also a hold, which is one of the other criteria for showing a red card. I suspect that the referee did not want to ruin the match by sending off a player less than 5 minutes in, and the neutrals should be pretty grateful for that because it did end up being a very entertaining match, but when the foul is committed is completely irrelevant and should not have influenced the decision. Now this is just me speculating, there are no reports or interviews or anything like that suggesting that this was the referee's thinking on the decision. Fast forward to the 16th minute, Nicolo Barella plays a chip pass into the box for Lukaku and it comes off the hand of who other than Diego Carlos. We've talked on this podcast how the refereeing in Italy, and from what I'm told in Spain as well, is different than the rest of Europe, specifically with respect to awarding penalties. In Serie A, a penalty would have been given there, and Carlos would have been shown a yellow, which would have been his second. At first, I thought the referee got this decision right, but when I saw the replays, I think there might have been something there. On the angle from the goalkeeper's point of view, it looked like Carlos had his hands behind his thigh and moved it out ever so slightly to block the pass. And then of course it was Carlos's bicycle kick that deflected off Lukaku for the own goal, which proved to be the winner. Even though the shot would have missed the target, which is why it was ruled an own goal, you do have to give him credit for his technique on the bicycle kick and for connecting fully because that alone is very difficult to do. Speaking of Lukaku, he was one of the few positives for Inter in this match. I feel like after every Inter match I'm saying he showed us his strength and again he did it in this match to win the penalty. Lukaku converted the penalty as well, which was his 11th consecutive Europa League match that he scored in. On the broadcast, they mentioned that Lukaku's 34 goals in all competitions tied him with Ronaldo for the best debut season in Inter history, which is really, really impressive. Lukaku also won the free kick, which led to the Diego Godin goal on the set piece, and he nearly scored a second in the second half, but Yassine Bounou did well to stop Lukaku, who was clear to goal. The problem was that Lukaku really didn't get any support when he needed it, which I'll talk more about in just a bit. The last player I want to talk quickly about is Luke de Jong, who scored a brace in this match. Lopetegui made the unexpected decision to start de Jong after he scored in the semi-final. After the match, de Jong told reporters that he didn't know he would be starting until that morning. The momentum from the semi-final carried through to the final with de Jong scoring that brace. Both goals were headers, and not to take anything away from de Jong, I thought Hendanovic might have done better on the first goal. So those were the players I wanted to talk about. The last thing I want to talk about is Inter's performance. I was really disappointed with this performance. 
I know Inter had the higher XG, but I'll explain why I was disappointed. And for those who don't know what XG is, it stands for expected goals, and it's used as a way to assess the quality of chances a club had. I have issues with how it's calculated and what it's used for, but we can save that for another time. Back to Inter though, I thought the accuracy of their passes needed to be better for a final. Sevilla's second goal started with a poor pass from Bastoni. I don't know if the pass was intended for Gagliardini or Brozovic, but in either case the quality was poor. If the pass was intended for Gagliardini, then it was hit way too hard. More than likely it was intended for Brozovic, in which case it was a poor decision because Everbenega was right next to Brozovic, so the pass had to be put in a pretty small window and he missed it. Brozovic ends up following Banega, and on the ensuing free kick, De Jong heads in his second of the match. Throughout the match, we saw Inter's passes just missing their targets. I mentioned earlier that I thought Handanovic could have done better on the first goal. I know it's always difficult from close range, but he was well positioned to make the save. He did get a hand on the ball, and when you look at the performance that Manuel Neuer had in the final of the Champions League, which we'll talk about shortly, sometimes that one big save is the difference. As good as Lukaku was, I thought he got very little support from his teammates. Things are not going to go well when Danilo D'Ambrosio looks like the most dangerous player outside of Lukaku. I know Sevilla were very fortunate to get that winning goal, but all in all, I thought they put in a much better team performance, and they were the better side on the night. After the match, Antonio Conte did what Antonio Conte always does. He said, I have no grudge towards the management, I don't think they have grudges towards me. It is not a matter of resentment, it is a matter of points of view and situations that I faced this year and I didn't like them. I also have a family and I have to understand if my priority remains football, because there is a limit to everything and I have to understand where mine is going. I don't want my private life to be affected as well, but without any hard feelings I assure you, it was a beautiful but tough journey from all points of view. I'm not going back, if we can improve we will do it, otherwise we will see. I know that I don't want to spend another year in this way. It is right that President Zhang also makes his evaluations based on what I tell him. So once again, Conte's future at Inter is in question, but at least based on the latest reports, it looks like there's a good chance that he stays. So that was the Europa League final. Two mega clubs competed for the Champions League title on Sunday. Bayern Munich won yet another final defeating PSG 1-0 on a goal from Kingsley Coleman in the second half. This was another really entertaining match. The first half was end-to-end -end action and was played how most people expected. Bayern were the most positive side while PSG looked to attack on the counter. Credit to Bayern for sticking to their guns. There was talk before the match about whether they would still press high as they normally do with the pace of Kylian Mbappe on the other side, but they did. That high line does not work without Manuel Neuer who doubles as a goalkeeper and a sweeper, so when the opponent tries to counter with a long ball over the top, he's usually there to clean up the mess. Despite being 34 years old, Neuer is still so important to this Bayern side. 
We've talked a lot about Napoli's goalkeeper competition and why Gattuso prefers Ospina, but Manuel Neuer is amazing on the ball. Like Gattuso, Hansi Flick likes to start the build-up from the back. When passing at the back, Neuer effectively becomes an extra outfield player, which is a huge advantage to have. But most importantly, he made the big saves when he needed to. In the 18th minute, he stopped Neymar from close range and blocked the pass on the rebound. Then in the 70th minute, he made an amazing save on Marquinhos, he was actually leaning the wrong way but kicked out his right foot to keep the ball out. A case could definitely be made that Neuer should have been the man of the match. Another option for man of the match would have been 19 year old left back and fellow Canadian Alfonso Davies. He became the youngest player in Bayern's history to start in a Champions League final. He's usually lauded for his offensive contributions which we did see some of in this match. Davies played in the cross when Lewandowski hit the upright but in this match I thought it was his defensive abilities that really stood out. He has the pace to keep up with any striker which is really useful for a team like Bayern that presses high and in so doing risks getting caught on the counter. He's also very calm at the back. In the 10th minute he headed a clearance backwards and out towards the touchline. The play I was most impressed with was in the 77th minute. It's 1-0. The match is very tense. PSG playing across and this 19 year old kid just gently heads the ball into the welcoming arms of Manuel Neuer and completely kills the attack. Now, that may not have seemed like a big deal for some people, but for such a young player to have the composure that he did to make the play that he did on the biggest stage was really impressive to me. The player who did win man of the match was winger Kingsley Coman. Coman was a bit of a surprise start over even Perisic who had started the previous three matches and scored in two of them. Coman is actually from Paris and was a product of PSG's academy, so he scored the game winner in the Champions League final against his former club. That was Bayern's 500th Champions League goal and thanks to the Guardian for that nugget. It was a beautiful team goal. The passing in the buildup was beautiful starting with Thiago's ball to Kimmich and then shortly after that Kimmich plays a delightful chip cross to the far post and then the header from Coman was both powerful and accurate. You could also make the case that he should have been awarded a penalty just before the end of the first half after he beat Thilo Kerrer to the touchline and then he nearly scored again in the 63rd minute with another run to the back post. The combination of Davies and Coleman on the left side was just too much for PSG to handle and PSG were unfortunate to not have Thomas Mounier at right back who might have done a better job than Carrer. For that reason I was a bit surprised when Hansi Flick replaced Coleman with Perisic after which I thought Bayern looked a lot less threatening. Now that may have been because Bayern changed their approach and tried to control play as much as possible rather than going for the kill. So that was a lot of talk about Bayern. I'll close with a few words about PSG. First their game plan was to defend and counter which seemed to work well enough. They had plenty of scoring opportunities particularly in the first half but they just couldn't finish on this night. Aside from the saves that I already mentioned that Neuer made, Di Maria had a chance in the first half but it was on his off foot and he skied the shot over the bar. Apparently Di Maria has never scored a goal for PSG with his right foot which is remarkable. And I got that from the PSG Talking Podcast, by the way. Chupomoting had a chance late in the match as well, but he just couldn't get a touch on the ball. And if he did, he probably finds the back of the goal. Mbappe arguably had PSG's best chance in the final minute of the first half. This was a bit of a crazy sequence. First, Davies makes an amazing tackle on Angel Di Maria to win possession while on a yellow, no less. Davies squares to David Alaba. He turns over possession at the top of his own box with a poor pass intended for Joshua Kimmich. Mbappe intercepts the pass and plays a quick give and go with Anders Herrera to create a wide open shot 
but Mbappe did not fully connect and his shot rolled rather harmlessly into Neuer's gloves. Speaking of Anders Herrera, I thought along with Marquinhos that he was PSG's best player in this match. He gave a pretty candid post-match conference. He spoke about not being clinical enough and how if you give Bayern a chance, they will kill you. He said Bayern did what they had to do to win and PSG did what they had to do to lose. He added that when you lose the way that they did, there are things you can take from the match and come back stronger. He did swear a little bit in the interview, but I had no problem with that at all. He really felt like he was speaking honestly and genuinely. Thomas Tuchel made some questionable substitutions in this match. After the match, a lot of people were questioning the decision to bring on Choupo-Moting instead of Icardi. I think Tuchel was probably thinking back to that Atalanta match where Icardi did next to nothing and then Choupo-Moting came in off the bench to score the game winner. For Bayern, this was their 21st consecutive win in all competitions, which is remarkable no matter what league you play in. And the title is Bayern's third since it was rebranded as the Champions League. So that's it for part 2. In part 3, we'll do our next feature on the Bosman ruling. Sticking with the transfer theme for today's feature, I'm going to talk about the Bosman ruling. If you follow transfers, you're probably familiar with the expressions signed on a Bosman or signed on a free, which are used synonymously. For those who don't know, the terms are used to describe a situation where a player's contract expires and that player moves to another club. Because his contract is up, the new club is not required to pay anything to the old club, so we call that a free transfer. To give an example, Napoli signed Fernando Llorente on a Bosman last summer. His contract with Tottenham expired on June 30th, 2019. Napoli signed him effective September 1st, 2019, so the transfer was free. Now, it's only free in the sense that the new club doesn't pay anything to the old club. However, the new club still has to pay the player's salary and commissions to the player's agents. So I've known this expression for a while. I know what it means, but I've never asked myself where did it come from. As I was working on the last episode's feature on squad requirements relating to non-EU players and minimum Italian players, I happened to stumble across this story which I thought was really interesting, so I thought others might find it interesting as well. 
So Bosman is the surname of a person. Jean-Marc Bosman is a retired Belgian professional footballer who played as a midfielder. He began his professional footballing career in 1984 with Standard de Liège, where he played for four seasons. During that time, Bosman made 86 appearances and scored three goals. Then he moved to Royal Football Club de Liège, or RFC de Liège, where he made only three appearances over two seasons. When his contract expired, Bosman attempted a move to French club Dunkirk. Liege valued Bosman at approximately £500,000 and insisted on the payment up front. When the French club refused, Liege not only refused the transfer but also cut Bosman's wages by 75% to £500 per month. Bosman took to the courts, suing the club Liege, the Belgian Football Association, and UEFA arguing that the rules set out by UEFA, which prevented him from leaving his club even though his contract had expired, amounted to a breach of his rights established in the 1957 Treaty establishing the European Economic Committee, also known as the Treaty of Rome, which allowed freedom of movement within the European Community, which is basically the European Union. For this feature, I'll refer to the European Community as the European Union, just to make it easier to understand and to make it more relatable. So here's how the court reached a ruling. I've done my best to translate the legal jargon into layman's terms. Each of the points I'm about to describe from the ruling is derived from case law. First, the provisions in the treaty relating to freedom of movement were intended to allow a member of the European Union to pursue work in a member state without being put at a disadvantage. So per the treaty, nationals, in this case a Belgian, have the right to leave Belgium to live and work in another member state, in this case France. Thus, any provisions that preclude a Belgian from working in France constitute an obstacle to that person's freedom. While it's true that the same rules that govern transfers between clubs in the same member state apply to transfers between clubs of different member states, those rules are likely to restrict the movement of players who wish to work in another member state by preventing them from leaving the club to which they belong even after their contract expires. If a player cannot move to a club from another member state unless the new club pays an agreed-upon transfer fee to the old club, which the old club can simply choose not to agree to, then these rules constitute an obstacle to the freedom of movement of workers. Thus, these rules violate Article 48 of the Treaty of Rome. On the 15th of December 1995, The European Court of Justice ruled that players should be free to move when their contracts expire and that European Union clubs could hire any number of European Union players. The Bosman ruling also prohibits domestic football leagues in the European Union member states from imposing quotas on foreign players, which is defined as someone who is not a citizen of the member state. Prior to the ruling, many leagues placed quotas restricting the number of non-nationals allowed on member teams. Similarly, UEFA had a rule that prohibited teams in its competitions from naming more than three foreign players in their squads for any game. After the ruling, quotas could still be imposed, but could only be used to restrict the number of non-EU players on the team, which was, in part, the subject of last episode's feature. So that's going to do it for episode 37. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. That really helps to promote the podcast. That also concludes season one of the podcast. Season two will commence next episode, which we're really looking forward to, as it will be the first full SETI season for the podcast. We started this back in April during the COVID break. 
With the next Serie A season not scheduled to commence until September 19th, we're going to reduce the frequency of the podcast for the next three weeks to one episode per week for a couple of reasons. First, it will give us an opportunity to catch our breath and recharge a little bit. Second, with no official matches, there's not a whole lot of content outside of transfer rumors, which I think we can cover sufficiently with one episode per week. And third, it'll give us some time to work on the podcast website and social media pages. But like I said, we'll still be putting out one episode per week, so there's no better time to send us your questions or topics you'd like us to cover on the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. So that's a wrap on season one. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to work on. We'll talk to you next week with the first episode of season two. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.